Luke chapter 2, and once again we'll begin our reading there at verse 21. Hear the word of our God. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought him in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us, thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this morning. This is our third Lord's Day, taking up this subject, the man, Simeon. And I trust that as we've done so, We'll see that Simeon, of course, is a man that well merits such attention. Of course, in a day like ours, a man like Simeon certainly is an example. An example of how to be a godly man. How to be one whose soul is fixed upon God in a declining age. And in a generation of defection against God. Simeon, of course, stands here as one such example. And... This Lord's Day morning, we conclude our time looking at the man. Really, both Luke and Simeon himself direct our attention elsewhere after we leave our text this morning. We focus then for a final time on Simeon. But even as we do so, I want you to notice, friend, that the text before us this morning really draws us to think not just about the man as he lives, but of course it draws us to think about the man as he prepares for death. In other words, what we have in our text this morning is nothing less than an example of a man. A man who belongs to a very small remnant of believing people, thinking of his end. What will the end of the righteous be in an age of decline? What will the end of the godly be in a period of defection? That really is the focus of our text this morning. And it comes to us in verses 28 to 30 in two ways. First of all, I think it's important for us to remember at the outset that what we have in this text is petition. Uh, this is Simeon offering request to God. And so you have that in the very first two verses. We're reminded that he is blessing God, and as he blesses God, he says here in verse 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. That's the petition. In other words, friend, what you have here is a man, as he's engaged in worship to God, mind you, as he holds in his hand 
the Son of God incarnate. This is his request. Let your servant depart in peace. As he holds Christ in his arms, and as we've said already before, as he holds Christ also by faith, he looks toward death, towards his departure. A friend, at once, in one sense, you could say that this is a rather strange request, especially at this juncture. This is an incredible moment. Here you have the one to whom all the godly have been looking for all of the generations before. And Simeon's mind is drawn at this moment toward his own end. It's not just that he says here, mind you, it's not just that he says, the word that you have promised has been fulfilled. The man really is thinking about his own conclusion, even as he holds the Lord's Christ in his arms, even as he's engaged in solemn worship. He's thinking of his end. Well, what do we make of that? Well, to answer that in part, we come then to the 30th verse. The man not only makes petition to God, but he grounds his request in something. He says here, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. It's an argument that Simeon makes. An argument that, of course, reminds us that the promise has been indeed fulfilled. Simeon has seen now, in this moment, the Lord's Christ. And, of course, the Lord God had promised that Simeon would not see death before he had seen this one, whom he now holds in his hand, holds close to his own breast. But, friend, as we look at this text, there's even more that can be said. I've said to you so many times already as we've looked at Luke's Gospel that that the Gospel writer, as he writes as the inspired historian, is not merely interested in providing for us a timeline of all of the events that pertain to the life of Christ. It's not just that he seeks to unveil to us who Christ is, but even more than that, he shows us time and time again how men and women respond to this Christ. He sets, in other words, before us, not just a picture of the Christ who is revealed, but how we as people who see Christ through the pages of Scripture are to respond to Him. Beloved, as we look at Simeon, we have to recognize that he still stands for us an example. An example of that believing remnant. As they look to Christ by faith, yes, as they see the incarnate Christ with their own eyes, but as they hold Him as their salvation. This is, yet again, another example of the Spirit of God instructing us what our posture is to be toward this Christ. And so holding these verses together, what do we learn? Well, friend, perhaps it's simple, but it certainly is well worth our time this morning to see here that in Simeon you have a picture that the believer dies in peace only through faith in Christ. Simeon is holy. Christ in his physical arms. But everything in his petition, everything that has gone before, argues that he was already long holding Christ in the arms of faith. And now as the man reflects on his final end, a man who genuinely holds Christ, well, friend, he expects to die in peace. And so that is our theme this morning. The believer dies in peace only through faith in Christ. And I want us to consider that under three headings. The death that's in view, his deportment in death, and lastly, the deliverance that the Lord promises. And so take, first of all, death, as you have it here in the 29th verse. 
Simeon prays, Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace. And of course, this is a reference to his leaving the stage of this world. This is, of course, a reference to death. And, beloved, I want you to notice that in verse 26, you have that promise given to the man. He would encounter death only after he had encountered the Lord's Christ. So Simeon says, very naturally, let now your servant die. But I want you to notice, beloved, as you look at this text, the word death doesn't occur here at all. In fact, the word here, depart, is the only word that alludes to death in the whole text. That word depart is a striking word. It's a word that is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe, for instance, one being set at liberty. That's Acts 26.32. Primarily, it is the word to be let go as it relates, as it relates to a prisoner, his release. And that's actually how the word is predominantly used in the New Testament. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 18. When Pilate speaks in those texts about him releasing to the people one of his prisoners, the word in our text, depart, is the word release that Pilate uses. Simeon could have simply said, allow your servant now to die. But when he uses this phrase, he communicates so much, not just about death, but what he thinks attends death. He doesn't describe death merely in its literal way, but he describes it as a form of release. A form, a form of being set at liberty. A liberation of sorts. And I want you to notice, friend, that as, even as he thinks about death and liberation as being one and the same thing, it's important for me to tell you here that he's not malcontent. He's not malcontent in the least, because all of this, all the petition we're considering this morning, falls under that context of what we have in verse 28, Simeon blessing God. He is not then one eager for death because he's malcontent with the Lord's providence. He's one who sees death as liberation, even while he blesses God, while he worships the Lord in spirit and in truth. And friend, this teaches us that for believers, death does indeed bring release. Death brings release. And there's so much that we could say here, but I only want us to consider this this morning negatively and positively, as it comes to us from the text itself. Take, first of all, the kind of release that death brings from the land of the living. And beloved, all that I would need to do is direct your attention once again to the context in which Simeon lived. Remind you only that the generation that he lives in is described as an untoward generation. A generation that was evil. A generation that was bent to turn the, the commandments of men into the doctrines of God and to create commandments of men that really jettisoned the law of God entirely. That was Simeon's generation. The land of the living for Simeon was a land of affection. A land of rebellion against God. A land in which all the generations around them seem to be crying, we'll approach God with our lips, but not with our hearts. That was the context in which Simeon lived. And you can understand then why a man such as he, living in such a time, would see death as a liberation. I mean, see this throughout the scriptures. When the godly look at their generation, and 
specifically the evil of their generation. Note their cries. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil men. Preserve me from the violent men. When Peter speaks to the generation, the very self-same generation that Simeon lives in, what is his cry? As he preaches at Pentecost, this is, this is Peter's cry. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. In other words, long to be pulled out from it. Don't make yourself home, make yourself a home among these people. Don't call this generation your lasting home, your lasting residence. It's the desire and it's the craving of the godly in such a time to be taken off that stage. To be removed genuinely and to use Simeon's language to be liberated from such an age. I mean, friend, just take example, yet another example from Lot. When Peter describes Lot, he describes him as a man. He was a righteous man dwelling among them in Sodom. Seeing and hearing, he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. What you have in Simeon and what you have in Lot is a very simple example. That friend, in a day of decline, in a day in which deception against God is normalized, the godly long to be taken out of it. There's nothing in the world then. There's nothing that they find in their present generation that would cause them to long to remain instead of being liberated by death. Simeon longs to be liberated. Longs for this kind of new departure. Now, that's negatively put. Why would this godly man long to be released? And why would he see death released? That answers the question only in part. Because there is a positive aspect to this text that we can't miss either. In fact, I would say, really, this text emphasizes the positive over the negative. Simeon, in other words, is not like Job. You remember whenever Job stands there and he cries these words, he's saying, I would not live all the way. Let me alone for my days are vanity. My soul is weary of life. Job says that because he's coming out of extreme adversity. Job says that because affliction has really become the catalyst for his longing for death. It's affliction, it's suffering that prompts those kinds of things. But that's not the case in Simeon. That's not the case in our text. You see, in our text, it is Simeon blessing God as he holds the incarnate Christ that elicits this petition. That provokes this request. That makes him see death as a kind of deliverance and liberation. What do we make of that? There's so much more that we will say in the time to come, but it's very easy for us to understand this moment. If we keep the rest of scripture in view. I mean, take words that are well known to us. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none on earth I desire besides thee. It's not just, beloved, that that Simeon looked around him and he saw the defection, the decay, and the evil, and wants simply to be relieved of that suffering and that vexation. But he holds one whom he desires more than life itself. He looks to a God whom he loves above all things. In other words, the sentiment in Simeon should be understood to be the very self-same thing we have in Paul. Paul saying, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ 
which is far better. In his judgment, the apostle says, it is far better to be apart from this world, just that I might be with Christ. Note how positive that is. Yes, the godly are going to be vexed in this generation. Yes, the godly are going to find themselves no longer at home, especially in a day of decline. But even in a day of reviving, even in a day of reform, the godly should still long to be with Christ over their present generation because of their preeminent love for the Savior. Their preeminent love for God. It should be written in their hearts, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's nothing that makes heaven heaven to me but that God in His, in His special glory dwells there. And whom have I on earth that I desire besides Him? There is nothing that I long for more than the fruition of God. Even in a time of blessing, even in a time of reformation, this is to be the cry of the godly. And you'll notice, friend, that that really is Simeon's focus. The argument that he uses here is not because this generation is decayed. Not because this generation is untoward and unbelieving. The argument for this petition is grounded in verse 30 upon the fact that he sees the Lord's Christ. Simeon's desire here is entirely positive. And beloved, as you look at this text, does it not only remind you afresh how much we are really to be pilgrims at all times in this life? Simeon is not content. Not content in the sense that he's not willing to rest in this life. He blesses God, the God of providence, for all that has befallen him. But this is not his home. And he knows that. And in fact, whenever he is delivered from this home, this passing, this short abode, he counts that deliverance a liberation. Beloved, that is to be the believer's experience. You and I are to live as pilgrims, as Simeon. And not merely because you and I face affliction in this present evil age, but because the one whom we desire is greater than even the greatest things one could ever encounter here. They are just passing through. They don't begrudge the journey. They still bless God through every adversity. But they do not make this place their home. And beloved, one does not become a Simeon. One cannot have that same sentiment unless we are a people who maul the themes that we have in this text. Are we a people who are too attached to the world? If we're believers in Christ, it's because our meditation on eternal glory is so sparse. Do we find ourselves seeking to make a home here and almost begrudging the thought of death? Well, friend, it's because we've not thought much of Christ. We will not be a people like Simeon unless we are a people given to meditating on these things. We must be alive, as it were, both to the difficulties of the present, but especially to the glories of the life to come. This is the character of one who waits. But that brings us to our second thing. If death is this form of liberation, Simeon doesn't merely describe for us the event itself. He tells us what will attend it. 
He gives us his deportment in death. Note what he says here. Let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Now friend, we could say so much just at this point. But allow me to take your mind back and just hopefully set before you how profound this statement really is. Remember death's origin. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. That's death. That's the inauguration of death. It is God's curse upon man for sin. That's the inception of death in creation. And friend, as you look throughout scriptures, unsurprisingly, when even believers speak of death, they associate it with pains and with terrors. All you need to do is work through the Psalter. The psalmist himself describes terrors of death, pains of death all around him. He associates the two. And we don't stagger when we find such statements, do we? Death originates from the curse. Death, of course, is supposed to be painful. It's supposed to be ridden with terror. That's how it came into the world. But then is it not profound what you have in our text then this morning? Is it not profound that you have here a case of a man who looks to death and finds that there's to be peace even there? That Abraham, a friend of God, will be promised, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Genesis 15. Or to find a Balaam, as we read in our text, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Is it not profound, friend? Is it not staggering to think that this thing that came from the curse could be attended with peace and even be coveted in any sense? And yet here you have Simeon looking to this fearful thing, this terrifying thing, and he says he expects to find it peacefully. He expects it to be a moment attended with harmony, with peace. Beloved, as you look at this text, of course we understand here, we have a picture of a man, a believer expecting death to be peaceful. And the peace that we have in view, I probably don't even need to say it, of course, but the peace that we have in view is peace in his spiritual sense, in its highest sense. We're not saying here that he will go to his death in peace as the world thinks. The world's view of a peaceful death is something that's attended without violence. One may die peacefully, says the world, as long as there's no pain associated with it, or at least no evident pain. That's not what Simeon has in view here. You see, friends, so many of God's people would die violently and yet die in peace. Just direct your attention to the end of Hebrews 11. Sawn in two, put to the flames, wandering in wilderness, exposed to the elements, certainly not the world's definition of passing in peace. But friend, they passed with the same very peace that we have in our text. It's a spiritual peace that Simeon has in view. And I want us to see this, friend, again, if I can just draw your attention to the contrast. Simeon expects his end to be peaceful when so many's end will not be. 
when the end of so many will be attended with terror and with pain. I'm, I'm speaking here, of course, about hell. And, and beloved, this is certainly not a text that brings to us the, the horrors of hell. But it should make us think about it just for a moment, shouldn't it? This is the very thing, the very opposite of what Simeon expects. You see, hell, of course, friend, is a place of torment, not of peace. It, it's a place of abject suffering. A place in which there is no inner solace whatsoever. The name peace is not spoken in that realm. There is no comfort to be tendered. There is no place. There's no corner of hell, if you will, that you can find any abatement from suffering. It's a devouring pain. It's a place attended, as Christ says, with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that image itself should communicate so much to us, shouldn't it? As, as folks are submitted to the flame throughout history, you'll find these accounts of, of just their nerves causing them to gnash their teeth because of the extremity of their pain. That's what Christ describes when he describes hell. It is a place of the greatest imaginable torment. No place for peace. No place for comfort. It's a place where conscience executes its subject without a blunted sword. Without a stayed hand. And friend, that, of course, is what makes hell so much hell. There, there is no place, no place of refuge for the soul. Conscience cries in a way it never did on earth. You are the man. This is the worm that dies not, says Christ. There is no refuge, no peace in this place. Because conscience pursues And executes for eternity. You have offended God. You are the one. Who has rebelled against the God. Who has been so good to you. You are here. Suffering here justly. Righteously. But friend even if that weren't enough. This is a place of eternal torment. The worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched. Friend, for an eternity, what will those in hell see? If they could look, as it were, over and and see, as it were, the tops of their place of suffering, they would still see those words written brightly and brilliantly. The Lord God who judgeth you is strong. He will not abate. Your suffering will continue. It will be unabated for an eternity. There will be no peace. Friend, that's very, very different than the kind of death that we have in our text this morning. A man who doesn't look for torment but looks for peace. A man who doesn't look for suffering but looks for nothing less than salvation. And I want you to notice, beloved, as you look throughout the text, of Scripture, you'll find that this is the expectation of the godly. Just take two psalms that are so very familiar to us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
This God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. How markedly different is their view of death than that of the wicked. They look to a God who will not only be theirs to the point of a deathbed, to the point of eternity's threshold, but a God who will guide them through that valley, a God who will be their guide even through death, a God who will tenderly deal with them even as they cross over that threshold and come into eternity. Beloved, that's Simeon's peace, and that's the ground of it. He has a God who has promised to be his God even through death. And so, friend, the apostle describes those who die in faith. They're described as those who sleep in Jesus. This is their expectation and this is the ground of their peace in death. They sleep in Jesus. There is an illustration of this that perhaps I think is largely unparalleled. It's one I think I've even read to you before. But it comes to us from a conversation that a minister of the gospel had in the 19th century with a member of his congregation who was dying. The minister asks rather pointedly, Are you ready to die? She lifted her gaze to me, he writes, with a solemn and fixed gaze, and speaking with great difficulty, she replied, Sir, God knows I have taken him in his word, and I am not afraid to die. I wanted to tell you that I can trust in God while I am dying. You have often told me that he would not forsake me, and now I find it true. I am at peace. I die willingly and happy. You can see, can't you, echoes of Simeon in that moment. A man, a soul, who looks to death and expects peace. When the likes of Balaam and every other man outside of Christ, every other soul estranged from salvation, should only expect torment. She says here, God knows I have taken him at his word, and I am not afraid to die. But second, thirdly rather, we come to our final point, and that is the deliverance that Simeon has in view. It comes to us in verse 30. Simeon tells us here that the reason for this petition, its ground is just this, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And though it was striking in this text, as you look at this passage, you'll see that here you have a man who says he has seen the salvation of his God. And we have to ask the question, well, what salvation has Simeon seen? It's not been national revival. I want you to be very clear here, friend. The the nation that Simeon beholds at this moment is still abjectly, still manifestly opposed to God. If he is expecting here national revival, if that's how he defines the salvation of God, Simeon simply has not seen it. And neither has he even seen the accomplishment of redemption and its fullness. That also is worth noting, isn't it? 
Simeon is not standing here at Calvary. And more pointedly, he's not standing there at the hill of ascension. And yet he says, nonetheless, though there is no national revival, and yet the accomplishment of redemption has not been brought to its fullness, Simeon still says, I have seen the Lord's Christ. I have seen the salvation of God. And for all this teaches us, doesn't it? Is that Simeon looks to Jesus Christ. To the incarnate person of the Son of God. As salvation itself. He's not looking to any particular work of Christ. But to Christ himself. As God's salvation. And beloved that holds out so much to us. I want you to take just as we close two thoughts from this. I want you to see how this, of course, leads us to think about the benefits that come to us from Christ. And also provide for us a glimpse of that vision that the godly enjoy for eternity. Take just the benefits that are ours through Christ. There are so many texts I could take you to. I think perhaps one that is most appropriate for our text this morning is what you have in 2 Corinthians 5. Take what the Apostle says. He says, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Now, friend, he's speaking here about the reality that in this life, the people of God are a suffering, are an afflicted people. That's not a subject that's strange to any of us. And the kind of groaning that you have in you should really take us back to Romans 8, and even Romans 7 before. He's groaning not under just physical oppression and physical ailment, He's groaning, of course, because indwelling sin lives on. He's groaning for all of these reasons. Evil within and evil without. Cause the man, as he says here, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. A glorified body that has been purchased to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Free of the taint of sin and free of susceptibility to suffering. These are the benefits the apostle looks toward when he thinks of eternal rest. Purchased by Christ. But I want you to notice as he continues what he says. He says, God has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, therefore, we are always confident. Knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now note this. Words that we, I think, too quickly read over. We are confident, he says. I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Know what he says here. Initially, he takes us, he reminds us that his life now is a life of groaning. And we understand that. But then as the apostle warns to his subject, so to speak, at the end of his passage, he's not merely fixated on suffering and relief from it. He says, really... There is something more to be had than just the alleviation of pain. There is something greater beyond even just the removal of sin and suffering. He's speaking here of just being present with the Lord. I am confident. Why is he confident? Because he has been granted before the earnest of the Spirit. He is confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body. Beloved, see what benefits Christ has purchased. See how the salvation of our God is revealed 
for those who look to eternity by faith through him. Friend, there is nothing, nothing even comparable, says the apostle, in man's imagination. No, the depth, height, length, and breadth are unknown to us in their fullness. It is far better to be with the Lord. The benefits procured by Christ are exceedingly great. My friend, I could stop there. And I think in many ways, most would say, well, this is, that would be a fair assessment of Simeon's disposition in our text. He is looking, of course, to life everlasting and the benefits that are procured for him by Christ. Streets of gold, alleviation from pain, removal of all fear, the final subduing of all original, all original indwelling corruption. But friend, that really, that really does not even get us to the foothills, I believe, of what you have in this text. One of our forebears put it this way. With the fatness of the earth and the fullness of heaven, if you had both, be enough for you. With the fatness of the earth and the fullness of heaven, if you had both, be enough for you. Contemplate that just for a moment. Is it just enough to be free from hell? Is it just enough for you to be free from sin and from suffering? Is that all that you need? The same man goes on to write. He who thinks anything less than God will suffice does not understand the soul. And he who wants anything more than God does not understand God. You see, friend, Simeon is not merely looking to streets of gold and of freedom from suffering. He is, as all of the godly throughout all the word of God and throughout all of time have looked, to God himself. This is what makes his end so desirable. This is what makes his end a real release, a real liberation. Liberated at last to enjoy God without suffering, to enjoy God without sin, to enjoy God now in a way he never did before, and to spend an eternity plumbing the depths that are in God. To spend thousands upon thousands of years reflecting on a God of glory and still knowing that he's not even approached the foothills. Of this God whom he loves. That's the end of the godly. It is not just the benefits procured by Christ. But it is God in Christ himself. That is the believer's lot and the believer's portion. And friend, I know I say these things to you often. But I need to. I need to. Because at the end of the day, this is the kind of sentiment alone. That tells us that a man or woman is prepared for death. Not just that they long to be free from hell. Not just that they long to be free from suffering. But that they long for God. That they long for Himself. That is what is required. And that is the only way a soul is really prepared. And really can see death. As liberation. You see, friend, this is the very thing. The very sentiment that runs right throughout Scripture. And... To the godly, there's a blessed, a blessed text that tells us that our Christ knows this craving. 
I go and prepare a place for you. I will come and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. I will not only deliver you from hell, I will not only spare you from suffering any longer in this life, I will not only provide for you all kinds of comforts and joys in the life to come, but I will make it so that you dwell with me. Why does Christ say this? Because this is the believer's craving most of all. To hold Christ, as Simeon does in our text, for an eternity. That is the believer's craving. And here we're told that that craving is met and for eternity will be met. As we close and apply, friend, I want you to notice there is a warning in this text, and that is that how many have read of Simeon? How many have read of his character? And how many have read of his joy? How many have read, even repeated his statements here that we have in our text this morning? And who are eternally without, eternally without this grace. It's not enough merely to know these things, to read these things on the page, to hear these things. Friend, so many have, and yet so, so few know the Christ that's in our text and know the joy that Simeon has by their own experience. And so, makes us consider just another question, doesn't it? How do we think about death? Do we think about death in the same way that Simeon does? Or do we think about death in some other way? And and allow me to take the second point. Friend, you and I know we live in a generation where the world does not countenance even the thought of death. We will live forever. We will be undying. We will never age. We will remain immortal. I mean, that really is the mantra, isn't it? In all the media. It's the underlying principle that really guides and governs so much around us. And so that's one way of thinking about death. Simply to distract ourselves with these false thoughts of immortality. Simeon doesn't do that. Simeon is quite conscious that he's inclining to the grave. He knows one day his eyes and his lips will close with death, and that will be it. Friend, be careful not to make a covenant with death. If you're outside of Christ this morning, that will always be your inclination. Simply to put it out of mind. To say that that's something you'll consider later on. To say that you can put it off itself until a later stage. Friend, that's not the character of Simeon. That's not the character of those who make a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. But secondly, friend, I would remind you too that neither neither is it Simeon's case to presume in thoughts of death. What I mean by that simply is just this. The man does not come when he reflects on death To think as though he'll present his own case to God. That he will barter with God in death. Oh, how blasphemously, but how frequently are those kinds of words spoken these days. 
I will deal with God on my own terms. That's not Simeon's demeanor whatsoever. Friend, be very careful. When Simeon thinks of his death, he holds Christ in his arms. When Simeon thinks of death, he blesses God. He's a man who has evidently made covenant with God by way of sacrifice, Psalm 50. And it's only in that way that he can presume, no, not really presume, but really believe that death will be peaceful to him. He approaches God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for any claim of self-righteousness, but holding Christ by faith. He expects these things. But friend, also I would remind you too. That another mark of a man who is prepared for death. Another mark of a soul who is prepared for the end. Is one who holds Christ and so has their affection for this world diminished. And that friend is so crucial, isn't it? That's the point that we so, so seldom have. Simeon looks to the world around him and he says, there's no one else I desire. Nothing here will do but Christ. But Christ. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none on earth I desire besides thee. Beloved, is that your craving this morning? I have to ask you that as your pastor. I have to ask you that because Simeon stands for us not merely as a historical person, but as an example. Is that your craving? For more of him? Could you readily relinquish even the best and most lawful blessing? Just that you might have more of Christ. But also, beloved, I'd remind you that Simeon is a man who never left. By the eyes of faith, he never left his Christ. He was a man who was fixed on the promises of Christ beforehand. A man who was fixed upon Christ himself, even as he held him in his arms. And that too is a mark of one who is really prepared to die. He thinks much of Christ. He thinks much of Christ as he's clothed in the gospel. These only, beloved. These factors only enable a man. To rightly expect the end that Simeon does. And so what comfort is offered to the believer in this text? A friend. He holds Christ. And he longs to hold him in the time to come. And he's assured that he will. What comfort belongs to those who have God as their portion and their lot? What comfort belongs to those who are assured for an eternity to plumb the unending depths of the glory of their God, to feast themselves on his perfections and upon his beauties for years and for days unending. And so as we close, sinner, soul outside of Christ, This text urges us to cry as Moses did. Oh, that they were wise. That they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. Consider, friend, your covenant with death, if you're outside of Christ, will not stand. It will be annulled one day. Consider your latter end. Set before you the eternal torments that Simeon did not expect. Set before you the eternal blessings that were assured to Simeon through Christ. 
set before you these glimpses of glory and of perfection that you have in the scriptures, those who enjoy God for an eternity. Consider these things now. But to the saint, friend, seek an early heaven. Simeon held Christ by faith long before he enjoyed Christ on the other side of death. And manifestly he enjoyed and he blessed God for having Christ in the present. Is that your ambition? Well, it should be. It should be our ambition even this morning to make God Christ our portion and our inheritance in such a way that our lives look like it. To make our lives look like those whose home is really heaven and not the earth. Who communicate more with the Lord God than they do with this present and evil age. That was Simeon's experience. And that should be ours as well. Brethren, ye brethren are not in darkness that that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. It's the very example you have in Simeon, isn't it? A man who held Christ in arms in the present, who lived like it his whole life through, notwithstanding every temptation and difficulty, and a man who was assured that in the time to come, he would rest in Christ's peace. May we be such people. Amen.